I love YouTube. I listen to music. I FaceTime my grandparents. I do video games. I make many videos. I watch movies. I like to text my friends. Welcome to the Techno Panic Podcast. Here are your co-hosts, Ian O'Byrne and my mom, Kristen Turner. Hey everyone, welcome to the Techno Panic Podcast. We're trying to make attempts to avoid the panic that many of us find, the moral panic when we look at technology in our lives. I'm your host, Ian O'Byrne, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Kristen Turner. Kristen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Ian. Uh, I just got back from a conference, and so I wanna start our conversation today by asking you, what is your ideal world of 2060? So when you look at your kids kind of down the road, about the age that you are now, what is your ideal world for them? In 2060, I hope that they have the opportunity to use technology as a way to socialize and communicate with others. Lately, I've been a bit concerned that it would be something along the lines of Ready Player One. That's my number one nightmare is that Ready Player One is slowly coming true. But that's an awfully awkward question. Why that specific? Well, the reason that I asked you is because that was the kickoff question that was asked by Henry Jenkins to um, some student activists who were sitting on the opening keynote panel at the Connected Learning Summit, which is where I spent several days last week. And the Connected Learning Summit is an opportunity for researchers and teachers and app developers and uh, other people who are interested in the world of connected learning to come together and talk about what children are doing online, what teens are doing online online and basically what learning is in a digital age. So connected learning is where interests of individuals come together with supportive relationships and those relationships might be peer-based relationships or they might be relationships between adult mentors and younger individuals who are wanting to learn from someone who has more knowledge in a field than they do. And then those interests and relationships are intersecting with real-world opportunities. So this is kind of where connected learning might happen more outside of schools than it actually does in schools at the moment because the interests and relationships are fueling kids toward opportunities that might be um, activism opportunities or professional opportunities or ways that they can actually make a living through their interests and their passions. So that's the theory of connected learning. Uh, It's a relatively new theory, but they've been doing um, research on it, I'd say, for about the last 10 years, which can all be found on the CLalliance.org, which will be linked in the show notes. But I really love going to this conference and talking to people who are thinking about the way kids learn and how maybe we can help um, both as parents help them be learners, but also as teachers, how we can embrace connected learning in our classrooms. Sounds like a lot of intersections across a number of uh, parties. It seems like you also had a great time. So what were some of the big takeaways that you had from your, your stay there? Well, there was so much that I learned. Uh, it's hard to kind of 
distill everything down into some big takeaways. But I think the thing that I kept coming back to over the course of the three days was that as a public, as a community, and that community is both a local community, but also a national community and an international community, we really need to think about what it means for kids to participate online in developmentally appropriate ways and not just shut down the spaces where they are able to participate because we are afraid for them, um, but think about how we can, as a public, make a safe space for kids online. And this came through from that opening keynote panel with the student activists um, who were just amazing young people talking about how they were making a difference in their own communities. Uh, In particular, uh, a young man named Justin was describing an organization called Students Deserve, which I will also link the website in the show notes so that people can learn more about this. But Students Deserve is a group of parents and community members led by kids who are trying to make better schools in the LA system um, and saying here's what students deserve and that's that's where the hashtag came from but he he was very articulate about talking about his role and how he was making a difference and then he and uh, his counterpart Jessica Riestra who's involved in other organizations talked a lot about how in online spaces that they are harnessing to help make a difference in their communities, they are also dealing with hate. And I think we saw this uh, most prominently with the Parkland students who stepped up after the shootings in their schools and and started to become more active, that they also dealt with this backlash of hate and whether the hate was saying that they were just actors or they were being used. Uh, It's real hate and these are real humans dealing with all of this in these spaces. So it it kind of begets this question, like how do we create safe spaces for kids to develop their identities and their voices? And Mimi Ito, who is one of the leading researchers of Connected Learning, uh, said that every kid deserves to have a safe space to be who they are and then to thrive so that they can develop their identities and then be brave and go out into the world and, and do things like Justin and Jessica are doing. Unfortunately, in the research that he, she's been doing, she said that openly networked spaces where kids are congregating to develop these identities and to feel safe and to have a community are often being shuttered because of the hate that's coming into those spaces. So this was a real question that um, I was grappling with during the conference and a lot of the presenters, the researchers, and then also the students and the parents who were there were, were commenting on as well. How do we create safe spaces Uh, where kids can develop these identities and become strong and become brave and thrive and at the same time, you know, help them to deal with this this hatred that might come at them. That's one of the concerns that I've had in a related piece of research that I've been conducting over the last couple of years and and I write about in my weekly newsletter is... I look at, like you said, the Parkland kids, or most recently we saw what people are labeling as the climate kids and Greta Thunberg. Thunberg. Basically, you know, you see these individuals, youth that get out online and speak out against a particular topic or speak on a particular topic and the threats and the vitriol. And you have people in, in power that are actively, with Greta, you know, people were saying that she needed to get spanked. Um, and then I see now there was a, you know, some people have 
uh, shared uh, violent threats against this 16-year-old individual. And so my concern is exactly how do you create these safe spaces? How do we allow people to share their viewpoint and then also thrive? Uh, this should be a space where all can go online and share. And I don't think that this is the type of social space that we thought the internet could and should be. Yeah, it's definitely taken on a, a life of its own as everyone is given a free voice, which is a good thing. Everyone should have a free voice. But thinking about who we are online and our digital identities and how we are interacting with people online is something that I think as a teacher, I really focus on in my lessons on digital literacy, but it's also something I talk to my own children about. Again, we've talked a lot on this podcast about just communicating with your own children, but I read their text messages, I read the things that they are saying, and if there's anything that can be misconstrued, we talk about it. And then I say, you might want to have a face-to-face conversation with your friend um, to see how this was taken from that perspective, because you just have to be aware that your words in an online space can hurt somebody else. We did talk a lot at the conference about the role of commercial companies in this, which is also something you and I have talked about in terms of whether apps are being built with kids' needs in mind and the attention to privacy issues and data harvesting from our children and and from us, quite frankly, as well. But some of the researchers on the panels were saying that commercial companies really need to take responsibility for being educational platforms. So uh, I'm going to reference Mimi Ito again because she mentioned she tried to reach out to Google about this. um, And and they kind of said, oh, we're just the tool. And her perspective is, no, Google is not just the tool. Google is the educational platform. When kids go onto Google and they do a Google search or when they go onto YouTube, they are learning. That's where they are learning. That is the platform. It's not just the tool that they're using uh, in their school or something. So what do you think about that, the commercial company role and, and educate, or I guess these technology platforms as educational platforms? It's sort of funny because earlier today I was logging into Google Classroom to set up materials for my students and there's a bunch of uh, uh, graphics in there where Google's patting themselves on the back. That classroom is now five years old. And I think in this we see a lot of technology companies that are a bit disingenuous that Google says, well, we're just a tool. We're not really the text or the space or we're just the tool. Uh, you know, we're not the learning management system. We've seen the same things happen with Facebook uh, or with Twitter. They say, well, we're just we're just providing the area for people to congregate. It's not really up to us to determine who can share and who can't share. So I think what we're seeing is a lot of these technology companies, they sort of try to move the goalposts. They try to redefine the, these terms when we need I think they bear, a cer- they bear a certain amount of responsibility in these situations. I think that they need to recognize the fact that the internet is the dominant text of this generation, and Google is one of those key linchpins that holds it together, whether it's Google the search engine or the Google ad networks that follow us around through our lives or all of the data that they capture through Google Classroom, Google Docs and apps and our Android devices, they sort of try to uh, obfuscate or sort of like slow walk these definitions. So I think they're being a bit disingenuous in that they should be held accountable and they bear a certain amount of responsibility. I don't know if they bear all of the responsibility, 
but I think they bury a certain amount of responsibility. Right, and if it goes back to the idea that we need a strong public sentiment around all of this, then the corporations that are providing the, the tools or the spaces are part of that public sentiment. But I think you're right, they don't have all of the responsibility because we are also part of the public. So we as teachers or we as parents or we as individuals have to also think about how we are encouraging companies to understand their role, but also what our role is. So uh, one of the other concepts that came up in the conversation is that our society actually divides entertainment from education. So they're two different things in the way that we look at the world for the most part. And perhaps we need to start seeing the overlap. So our kids are learning through technologies that we might see as entertainment. And I just want to read a quote from um, one of the Connected Learning uh, Alliance's books. It's called Affinity Online, How Connection and Shared Interest Fuel Learning. And in this, uh, toward the end of this, they draw the conclusions after talking to a lot of teens who are engaged in online spaces, online affinity spaces, meaning that they are meeting up with people who share common interests or who share common um, values. And they say that young people seldom described parents and educators as actively supporting their long online activities. And I think this is something that I hear about a lot, that parents don't understand what kids are doing. Um, they don't necessarily value the technologies that they are using as spaces where they might be learning or developing an identity. They just see it as entertainment. And the group of authors in this book says that a genuine lack of understanding and visibility around what digital youth culture is about is one of the issues in that kind of misunderstanding there. And then the second is that we have kind of this cultural value that entertainment is negative. It's not a good thing. It's not moving us forward. Um, and perhaps part of the way to change public sentiment is just for us as parents to shift what we are thinking about our own children doing in our homes. That yes, they might be engaging in playing StarCraft and I have no understanding of what StarCraft is or, or Minecraft or whatever the, the tool is that they are using, but if they are doing it in a space with other kids, they actually might be developing some connections. They might be learning things that we don't understand because we've never engaged in those spaces. And we might want to take a step back and instead of just shutting it down saying, you're doing that too much or that's not going to get you anywhere, have a conversation with them and start learning about uh, the technologies that they're using. This is one of those things that we've talked about pretty regularly is just having the need for communication with your kids. Sit down with them and watch what they're doing. See what they're playing. Who are they interacting with? Why why do they value this? And then I think it's also a question of fluidity in these concepts. As, as an adult, we often take time just to put things in these binary designations of this is entertainment, this is education, this is online, this is off. And I think that also goes to friendship. You know, this is a real friend that you walk, this is the kid that lives next door to you, you walk to the bus every day, this is a real friend, an acquaintance that you meet online to play Minecraft that you've never met in real life, that's not really a friend, that's just someone that is online playing along with you. And I don't know if that's entirely true. A couple of years ago, I had a piece in a journal where we talked to a, a, a young man, a middle schooler at the time, 
and basically said that he didn't really have any friends in school, but he had a lot of friends that were online. He had a lot of people in the Minecraft community that he would engage with, and these were his real friends, but no one you know, in the quote-unquote real world was his friend. And so it led me to start thinking about what these definitions and what these relationships are all about. And giving your kids time and space and latitude and freedom to explore these things. And that doesn't mean to say that there shouldn't be limits uh, on the entertainment side of what we are doing with screens, uh, something we've also talked about a lot. Uh, One of my other takeaways from this conference, which I love going to because I always learn about new tech tools, is a new game, a new video game. And the uh, keynote speaker who was talking about this video game titled her talk, Walking with Thoreau, Uncommon Wisdom for Game Designers. So as an English teacher, a former English teacher, when I see Thoreau's name attached to video games, I am immediately confused. What are your initial thoughts when you hear Thoreau and video game together? (laughs) Yeah, you were sending me messages and you said, oh, we need to check this out. We need to check out is Thoreau a gamer? We need to check out this video game called Walden and agreed as an English major, as an ELA teacher, English and language arts teacher, I was thoroughly confused. So is this something that is exciting or am I basically, I can imagine that I'm basically walking through the woods with Thoreau getting lost. Yes, that is a that is exactly what you do in this game. So for anyone who is not familiar with Thoreau, he is the one we all learned about in high school English who went into the woods to live deliberately and he lived by himself in the woods for a period of time and then wrote about it. And the reason that is connected to this game is because he is actually the character in the game and so you are Thoreau and you are walking through the woods and it was interesting because walking has actually long been equated with learning according to the keynote speaker and so this idea that you can walk and reflect which came up in last season's episodes when we were talking about meditation and how meditation doesn't have to be sitting and being quiet, but you can go out for a walk and meditate. And so I I was thinking about that conversation as I'm watching on the screen Thoreau walking through the woods as a game character. So it's a first-person game. Uh, You are Thoreau. And most games don't allow time for reflection, but the developers of this game said, what if they did? What if the game was not just a series of choices that you're doing in quick succession, but that if you had a time for reflection within the game, and rather than uh, the game rewarding an assumption that more is better, so I just need more, I need to uh, increase my little shack in the wood, I need to add stove, I need to have all of these things, that you actually are trying to balance um, survival with inspiration. And the more that you focus on survival or getting more in your life, the less inspiration that you have and the inspiration is part of what you need. But if you only focus on inspiration, then you are, they don't actually have the character die, they have the character uh, pass out, I think, or faint or (laughs) fall asleep, Um, but that you can't succeed in the game. So the game is actually about balance. And it was just fascinating to me, but basically, yes, you are walking through the woods and you are going through the seasons. um, And I I really want to play the game because I'm just so curious about how a game could be slowed down and allow for my personal reflection as a human being through playing the game. 
I'm reading a quote about it uh, from the New York Times, and it says, you need to leave sufficient time for contemplation. It don't work too hard. The game cautions you that your inspiration has become low but can be regained by reading, attending to sounds of life in the distance, enjoying solitude and interacting with visitors, animal, and human. You're getting me closer to Ready Player One. I'm thinking about the fact that I'm thoroughly interested and I'm already figuring out what's, you know, what uh, system can I buy this on. It seems like I can get it on Steam for a pretty decent price point. But it's interesting because instead of going for a walk, you know, or instead of taking my kids out for a walk through the woods and we'll listen to nature and we'll see what bears are there, or, you know, watch out in this neck of the woods, we're watching out for snakes and gators right this time of year. Instead of going out for a walk in the woods, now I can put this game on our system and we can go for that walk and we can reflect and our goal can be stillness and and bonding. But we're using this digital space almost as a proxy to get there. Right. And, you know, personally, I would rather go for the actual walk in the woods, but I'm thinking that maybe this is a way to help everyone slow down a bit and still be entertained, but also get some of that educational value of reflection and contemplation. Uh, I will say that you would probably learn a lot about Thoreau, and uh, there are many classrooms that are using this game, and it's free for educators if you go to waldengame.com for educators to use in their classroom. So definitely if you're teaching American literature, (laughs) check this out. Um, But I think there are other spaces and other classrooms where this might be interesting as well. So there were some other uh, apps and technologies that I wrote down as a parent thinking about bringing back to my own children. Uh, One of the ones was Roblox. Do you know anything about Roblox? Absolutely. Roblox uh, has has been a frequent point of discussion and possibly consternation in my house. What did they say about Roblox? Well, I was um, listening... Uh, Well, I'm going to ask you that because I think you articulate it better. What is Roblox? I see Roblox as being a very cool game development network. And so what I see it as being is almost a version of Minecraft, the look and feel of Minecraft. But basically, people can go on and they can create games. They can create art to some extent in Roblox. And they can share that with others. So I can create a game in you know, what looks like something along the lines of Minecraft, and I can share it with others online, and they can play that game. So it's kind of like a a social network for game developers, almost, it sounds like. Exactly. And anyone can get in and create a game. I think it's free for pretty much everything. So a, a middle school kid can get in there and they can create a game and they can share it with others. Um, I believe you can give and get feedback to improve the game mechanics, and it's a very easy way to create very simple games or very complex games that other people can get in and play with you, and you can share it throughout the network. So, Anne, this sounds like it's right up your alley. You know, it's got opportunities for feedback, opportunities for creation, opportunities for connecting. Why has it been a point of consternation in your house? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, This is definitely up my alley. Uh, I first came into contact with Roblox about two or three years ago. We would go over to a friend's house and the adults would be sitting around talking and then I would notice that the kids would all be in another room playing video games together and they kept switching over to, I think it was a big Mac in the house and they were all playing this game and I it looked like Minecraft. 
And so I said, oh, you're all playing Minecraft. And then one of the kids said, no, no, this is Roblox. And so Roblox, you can play on a computer, you can play it on a tablet, you can pretty much play it on any device. It's cross-platform. And so they were all playing Roblox. And, and I said, wow, this, is, this looks interesting. Jax was really into it. He wanted to put it on all the devices at home. So I created an account for him. And the fact that you could create games and create content and share it for others, that's what really interested me. I want a space where he can get on and socialize and play together. That's one of the reasons why we bought the Xbox One, so he could play Minecraft with his cousins who live many hours away. But then also the fact that he could create that content and share it out with others and other people could play what he created, you know, use the artwork that he uh, spent time creating. That really, really interested me. So the challenge for us came where one once again I sat down and I was looking you know watching him play and asking him questions in the conversation that we talked about and some of the games that he was playing looked very violent one was uh, about being a cop killer they were running around this building and they were shooting at each other and and I was a little bit concerned and then as I dug in a bit deeper I realized that if anyone can create a game, that means that anyone can create a game. There's, there were no real content moderation pieces built in. One thing I had was a concern that somebody would create a game that was very violent, and I didn't think that he needed to be playing it at that age. But then also, some of the language from others, so when you're playing, you could be collaborative, and other people can talk to each other or text each other. And so some of the language would be what a previous guest on this podcast labeled as salty language. And so at that, my wife and I both, both said, no, we're gonna pull a plug. We're not gonna allow you to play Roblox. And that's been, and it was upsetting for Jax. He, every once in a while, he uh, would reinstall it on the tablets or the computers and I would get a notification that he was installing a app. And then when I saw that it was Roblox, you know, I, I sat down and had to talk with him about why. I didn't want him playing that, and it was it was a tough decision to make and a tough thing to talk about when he was six or seven at the time, and that was the age of the other kids that were playing it. So a lot of the friends in the area were still and do still play it, and we made a decision, no, we know that these other people, these other parents are letting their kids play. We don't think it's appropriate for you. I know those are hard conversations to have, right? I do know that Roblox has recently launched at Roblox Education, um, so I'm going to challenge you to take a look at Roblox Education and see if that particular aspect of Roblox might be something that allows students or younger students to come in with in a safer space and then build their way up to understanding which games should I be picking to choose to play, um, which I'm sure is a conversation that you will continue to have with your son. A couple of the other, um, just to name a few really quickly, Scratch, which is a basic learning how to code program that I think more and more schools are using nowadays too. So that might be something that comes up in conversation between parents and children. If you're asking, hey, what are you doing in school? And they talk about Scratch. They're basically learning how to code. Uh, there was another, I guess, video game kind of app um, called GameStar Mechanic. And the idea is that kids are learning to design games within that app. And then just two of my favorites, uh, 
bringing home to my my own children, I got to play with an app called Cross DJ. So if you imagine um, two turntables on an iPad, you actually got to pretend you were the DJ, you know, scratching the records and transitioning from one record to the other and mixing music right there together without having to have the the big system of two turntables. So that one was pretty cool, and I can't wait to share it with my daughter because she's my musician in the family, and I think she'll really enjoy it. But then I also learned how to very quickly in GarageBand create a song using the open um, copyright loops that are embedded in the GarageBand system. So if you have any kind of Apple device, uh, you would have access to these loops in the GarageBand and you can just drop them in and then you know, do some freestyling with uh, music or rapping or something like that. Um, and we did one in our session at the conference. And then um, my brother and I actually played and we, we created a song. And then uh, my daughter and I have been playing with it. So this is just a fun way to play. Uh, and I've really enjoyed playing with the people in my family using these technologies. It's fun to explore. You know, we've talked a lot about communication with your children when they engage in these spaces. It's a lot of fun to explore and figure these things out with them. I think that one is it gives your children the the signal that you like to learn as well and you're trying to figure out these spaces later on if and when you have to have tough discussions with them. This provides that, that portal for you to think through, okay, well, remember that time we tried to figure out this one app or that one space and we realized it was safe or it wasn't safe? Then later on in life, when your kids come to you and they have to have those tough discussions, then they can, you know, you have a little bit more uh, latitude how you connect to them. Yeah, and I know it's it's hard to find that time too, but I think carving out the time and just saying, hey, it's okay to play, and I'm I might not be any good at it, and that's fine. That was a big takeaway from the session where I was creating the song that it doesn't matter if it's bad, just have fun and play, and and I think that's an important takeaway as well. Well, I've enjoyed recapping the conference with you, Ian, and I look forward to our future conversations as we try to live and learn in this age of screen time. I just want to leave us with this thought from Henry Jenkins, who was one of the researchers presenting at the conference, and he said something to the effect of, we used to say it takes a village to raise a child, but now we are so busy protecting children from the village. And so I want to think as a parent about how I can embrace the spaces that my kids are, are finding online um, because it is helping their identity development. But I also don't want to just let them go. I want to talk to them about those spaces and understand what they're doing um, and not just shut them down. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing uh, your experiences at Connected Learning. And once again, thank you uh, for listening to the Techno Panic podcast. See you next time. Thanks for listening! Now I can get back to watching my videos. Take the pillow out!